Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 12 of Off the Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all for joining us today, wherever you're tuning in from. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, coming your way this week on the podcast are some massive interviews with stars from all over the world of swimming, starting with today's huge guest, a man who in many people's eyes is one of the greatest swimming coaches of all time, and that is Coach Greg Truy. Now, before we press play on this interview, it's going to peel the curtain back a little bit here on the show and reveal that this episode was meant to be out for all of you guys to hear last Friday. However, in season three, I am doing all the editing for both the audio and the videos, and I uh, just ran into some trouble a day before uh, this was meant to be out last Friday. So I do apologize to you all for that, but after some time, effort, and energy, it is ready for you all to listen and to view. So I'm very glad because... Uh, there's many, many, many words of wisdom in this interview. I couldn't even keep up doing the interview, so I'm so glad that I'm able to get this out to you guys today. Coach Greg Troy has mentored many great athletes during his coaching career, and it is my absolute pleasure to be able to give you a small insight into the mind of one of the greats of our sport. So get your pen and paper ready, because Ep 12 with Greg Troy starts... Now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a metre on Van der Nuzen's hand. But the signature of all eyes is the great man of butterfly, Susie O'Neill. He's coming back. Oh, he surely can't do it to him again. Chavez in the white hats, Phelps in the black hats, and Phelps has got it. I cannot believe he's done that. Thorpe's in front. Thorpe in the hall. Thorpe goes in. Australia win. Joining me today on the show is a man who has coached 68 Olympians during his career so far. And yes, you heard me right. That number was 68. He is widely regarded as one of the goats of world swimming when it comes to coaching. And who can argue when you look at his ridiculously impressive resume and list of superstars he has produced with Ryan Lochte, Elizabeth Beisel, and in recent years, a man you all know by the name of Caleb Dressel. It is a massive honor to welcome to Off the Block Swimming podcast to Mr. Greg Troy. Greg, how are you going, mate? Oh, real good. It's nice to talk to you. Now, it's been a while in the making, this interview, mate, but I'm glad we've managed to, to make it happen, and I appreciate you giving up your time. I know how busy you are at the moment. Firstly, how are things over there for you at the moment? Crazy times, it seems, with coronavirus. Uh, you've got protests going on. You've got your president. How are you holding up, mate? Now, we're just trying to kind of keep our focus on, on getting started, and we, we've actually been in the water a little while already, so we're trying to yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long time, and it's certainly a unique dynamic. I don't think anyone's really prepared for what we're dealing with. So it's, it's, um, we're feeling our way along just like everyone else. What about for yourself, mate? Obviously, you've been doing this for many years now. Was it hard to just adjust and change to things at first? Or being the professional that you are, did you just sort of pivot and make those changes as you went? Well, I've always worked with a large group. Fortunately, I stepped back from the college team two years ago. I, I was talking with my wife, and I had to go from full bore with the college team to what to nothing there for a while. That probably would have driven me nuts. But I had half a step where I'd done a little different, was working with a much smaller group. So it, it made it uh, made the transition, I guess, a little bit easier than what it could have been. But it certainly was um, um, 
I've been coaching now since um, full time since '72, and I had a couple years of age group stuff in before that. So uh, it's the longest I've ever been off the deck of the pool. I was off for eight weeks. Unprecedented times with the Olympics being pushed back, and you know all those restrictions around training, and depending on where you're in in the world, you know it depends on what those restrictions are. If Tokyo does go ahead next year, what do you think are some of the keys to ensuring athletes are both physically and mentally prepared to go in a year's time? I think staying healthy is is going to be really key, um, and and, and it, it's um, I I don't know what your situation's like there, but ours is so different from one locale to another. So it, it's going to depend on um, on how each locale approaches training when you do have problems, because uh, it doesn't look like for us anyway that the the virus is going away anytime soon. Um, so how we use the next twelve months is is probably key. Uh, we were fortunate with our group. We, we haven't been out of the water too much, so I think we're aerobically fairly fit. Mm. But uh, we, we've got to keep everyone healthy and, and and hopefully have pool time. Right now, one of our biggest problems has been finding pool time. Have you got stuck into anything during lockdown? Anything like, I know Bob Bowman, I was talking to him the other day. He's been baking and, and cooking a lot. What about yourself? What have you been getting around? I was fortunate. Um, I've got a place that's, that's on the water about an hour outside of Gainesville. And... Uh, so my youngest son and his wife, she was a teacher and teaching from, from afar on the internet, and he's a fishing guy. So I, they, they lived next door to me for, for eight weeks, and we went fishing every other day. It was actually, um, I told people, it was, for us, it was a little like being caught somewhere between um, the movie um, uh, um, Groundhog Day and Castaway. How'd you go with the fishing, mate? Did you, did you catch a few? Did you do all right for yourself? Oh, it was great. It was great when the guide was here. I've been quite as good since he left. But, uh, <laughs> we're clean. We're a couple today, so I got dinner. Now, Matt, there's no doubt that your name is synonymous in swimming with success and has been for quite some time. But you know, like all coaches, you have to live and learn and develop your own sort of winning formula. Talk to me about your early days in coaching and how did you find your feet and your identity? Because at what point did you start to feel pretty comfortable that you had a good grip on you know, what it took to develop and nurture the best athletes? I've been really, I don't know whether it's lucky or unlucky. I was a head coach almost immediately. I came out of college in 72 with plans of going to law school. And um, <clears throat> degree in history and government had no plans of coaching. I ended up in a dynamic in a small town where I took a job teaching just to get enough money to go to law school. And the basketball coach at the high school came to the junior high I was at and said, listen, they make me coach the swim team. If you'll do it for a year, I'll just give you the supplement, which wasn't a whole lot of money. I think it was $800. I'll give you the supplement. I'll do all the paperwork. So I, I ended up spending five years in Fort Myers. And I was, I was really fortunate because um, I had a, a real good organization that I worked for. And they allowed us to, um, to build the size of the team um, and a good high school team. And I had a couple really good athletes, a guy named David McCagg and was a, was a real good sprinter. Mm. Uh, as a high school guy and uh, Paul Asmuth who went on to become one of the best open water swimmers in the world so some real good people to work with and I guess for lack of a better term experiment with the first five years yeah and, um, the, the fortunate thing though at, at that time in Florida there were a lot of good coaches in the state um, Terry Carlisle was coaching Jack Nelson was coaching in Florida uh, Randy Reese was coaching Eddie Reese was coaching in Florida so I had a lot of people like that you could um uh, lean on a little bit, sit around and uh, maybe have an adult beverage at night and listen to. So I got a, got a lot of experience and um, had a chance to make a lot of mistakes. 
Yeah. And I think if you're in this along any length of time, you're going to make some mistakes. The, the sport is really brutal. Just mm. when you think you've got all the answers, it beats you down pretty good. So, um, so I, I think um, the fortunate part is without having anyone, I made a lot of mistakes, but uh, and gave me the opportunity to make those mistakes and uh, learn from them real quickly because I try not to make the same ones again. But there's plenty of them you can make. Mate, you mentioned some of the other coaches there. And as coaching, you know, something that's very important is having mentors and people we can go to to help us grow and, and learn. For many people, I'm sure that's you. I know for, certainly for me, that's you. Who are some of the people that have mentored you over the years and how have they helped shape your sort of coaching philosophies? I think all, all those guys I talked about the first time, but I, I had a, a whole group of younger guys that were my age. Um, and um, I, I got to know Mark Schubert pretty well. So Mark was on the other coast, and uh, we, we always had kind of a work-oriented program. And Paul Asmuth, when he, when he left me, went on, um, when he went to college, he finished college in California. He swam for Mark for a few years. So I, I had a little rapport there, and um, that's when Mark was in a big volume. Um, and uh, so I had a lot of distance freestylers. Yeah. So I, I would say that was a big impact. And then as I, as I got a little bit later in the, uh, in the 80s, um, I was uh, head coach for the Thai Olympic team and uh, gave me a chance to go to the, the um, Far East several times. I became uh, linked up a little bit with Bill Sweetnam and obviously being an Aussie, you guys got yeah. a pretty good feel there and there's no one better as far as understanding the sport. So I, I think those type of people were, um, were, were really good. And at the same time, um, I had four or five younger coaches that um, – maybe not quite as noteworthy because they haven't worked with this high quality athlete, but really understood sport and the exchange with them allowed for a, a tremendous growth when you put it, uh, combine it with the experience of guys like, like Sweetenham and, and having a chance to be around the Randy Reese's and, and, and people like that at the same time. <laughs> I did note that maybe in my research that you did some coaching with the Thai Olympic team. What was that experience like? Oh, it was tremendous. It gave me an, uh, an opportunity. I, I, I got to go, um, that was actually in the, the late, that was right before, um, that was right before Barcelona. So it was the late eighties and through the about 93, 94. And I'd been to the 88 Olympics with the Guam Olympic team because I had a, uh, at that time I'd gone from, um, from Fort Myers to Jacksonville, Florida, worked at the Bowles school. And I, I guess for Aussie terms, um, Bowles is very much like St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. uh, when I talked to Michael and, and he talked at the, the ASCA clinic, um, the program he outlined at ASCA, the, the way St. Peter's was set up, was almost exactly what we had at Bowles. Um, when I started there, we had a eight-lane, 25-yard pool, and we built a 50-meter beside it. And um, I started, we had, the, the place had a good tradition, but had gone through a downspell. Everyone had left. Yep. And, but we did have a boarding program and a good nucleus. So we started out with uh, my first meeting was with about 10 athletes. And there was a little club team of about 30 with a few age groupers. And uh, when I left, we were up to about 350 athletes. I was there for 20 years. Great, actually 21. Great place to work. Fantastic dynamic. But it did have an international aspect. So I got to go with a boy from Guam to the 88 Olympics. And then I had those the experience with the ties and um, the, the, the um, the Thai Olympic Federation was really good. They kind of gave me free hand with those guys and um, their focus. They sent them over early. They got there in, um, I want to say 89, 89, 90, and told me that I could take them to the 92 Olympics, but the goal was the Southeast Asian Games 
mm -hmm. uh, maybe 93 or 94. So it gave us a, and they were all young. Uh, the Bulls experience was tremendous for me. What did you learn from working with the Thai team and, and coming out this way, working with, say, Bill Sweetnam and talking to a lot of the different Aussie coaches? How, how did that help with your coaching philosophies? Oh, it, with, without a doubt. For, first of all, I, I, um, I realized how, how lucky we were to have the facilities we did because the Thais, we spent some time in Bangkok and then uh, spent some time in Singapore and Hong Kong, met a lot of coaches, so I was able to blend a lot of things that uh, every time – I think the, the coaching community is, is, is so uh, willing to, to give and uh, everyone has something to offer. So every time I heard a good idea and something that, that caught my attention, I try to bring it back and see if I could modify it to make it even better or make it fit the situation we were in. Mm. And you can't be around a guy like Bill Sweetnam and not, not understand. Uh, he gives you a greater understanding of what it takes to really perform at the highest levels. Um, and at, at the same time, I had the good fortune to, I worked with Anthony Nesty. He was from Suriname and came to Bulls. Um, and, and I got to know his coach, Kenneth McDonald, there. Um, the, 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 the blending of all those different philosophies allowed me to uh, look at a lot of different ways to do it. But Bill, the absolute best and the most articulate about what it takes to get to the highest level. And I, I guess the, the things I most learned from Bill is um, a little of that, um, you're not going to get very far if you compromise. And at, at the same time, uh, got to meet a lot of Australian coaches. I'm pretty good friends with, with Dennis Cottrell. And uh, Dennis always had a, a unique approach to training and, and very, very sharing. Michael's the same way. So I, I think those things all together allowed me to blend something, a style that worked for me. Mm. And it also showed me there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, mate, communication has always been important between athletes and their coaches, and to some extent also coaches and swim clubs and parents. But I'm thinking at the highest, most elite level with these young men and young women that are now adults where you predominantly work, it's absolutely crucial to have great communication and trust. You know, talk to me about that dynamic for you and how have you seen that change over the years? Yeah, it's definitely changed over the years. You know, that, that, that whole thing, you know, uh, Bill talks about you start out a little bit that authoritarian coach. Um, and and I, I probably started out a little bit that way and, and certainly believed in hard work the whole time. But the, 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 um, I found that the, the athletes that were most successful working with me were the ones you could get the closest to and they would give you the information back. Um, uh, I, I think the, um, the number one thing is, is honesty. And when they know you're honest with them, um, even brutally so sometimes, it gives them an appreciation of the passion you have for what they're doing, and it also allows them to be honest with you. Mm. And, and I think you've got to be pretty thick-skinned about that, but when they're, when they're honest with you, they, you, they want to do well too, and they give you good information back. You've got to take, the way I always explain to the athletes, if, if they would give me good, honest information and then allow me to take the years of experience and all the, the close, close associates I had in the in the, in the sporting world and, and the swimming world, allow me to take that information and take my knowledge of the sport and my experience and years doing it and combine with the information they gave me, we increased our chances of success. And, and there's no such thing as 100%. If there was, there'd be a book and everyone would just follow the book and everyone <laughs> would swim fast all the time. We all know that is the case. Yeah. So I think, um, I think the communication with the athletes, I, I, I might have learned that best from a guy, Gustavo Borges. I Gustavo for, for several years. I had him in, in high school. And when he came from Brazil, he was a, the high school national record holder here in the States. And, 
and he was he was a very caring individual and he'd come a long way from home uh, very good communication skills so he gave me a lot of skills a lot of information about where he was and then after he finished college at Michigan from Virginia Banchek, he came back and swam with me for the, the, the two years, year and a half before um, 96, where he was second in the 200 free and third in 100 freestyle. And um, that time he was older. He was very accomplished. <coughs> Excuse me. So he could give me good information. And I knew I could trust what he was giving me. You know, um, sometimes the athletes have to, uh, we can get caught up. Um, their opinion of where they're at is tainted by fatigue. Mm. And as a cook, you can't allow yours to be tainted by fatigue. So Gustavo was old enough then that he gave me good information on himself. Uh, Greg Burgess, about the same time period. Um, he was second at the Olympics in the 200, for, in the 200 IM in 92. Same dynamic. Um, really aggressive athletes have a good feel for their body, and they could give you information back. Uh, I was talking to... Um, one of my assistants today, and somehow it came up in conversation, they're along the same lines of talking with athletes. Um, I, I remember Gemma Spofforth, the year she broke the world record, that spring um, she won the NC2ME 200 backstroke. It might, might have been the year before, but she, she, she won the 200 backstroke. She won the 200 backstroke and never warmed up that evening. Went the fastest backstroke split at the NC2ME meet on, on leading off the relay, and then uh, – came back and uh, I don't think she swam another event. I think she just swam the 200, 200 back on the, the night of the 200 back. That's all she had. Uh, she'd finished two days of meet was pretty good, but um, she'd had a real tragic situation with her mother. And yeah. every once in a while it would relapse and something would trigger it. Yeah. And she was having an extremely hard time that last day of the meet. Um, I think it coincided with some, some bad memories uh, of, of mom's illness. And we spent the entire warm up literally the entire warm-up um sitting and talking in a back room she never touched the water in warm-up um, um I, but but I, I think the confidence they gain from those type of things and um, your understanding of, of how important it is to talk with the athletes th th those things are really key mate you mentioned some massive names there and another one i want to mention is an out and out superstar that you've developed and worked with and that's ryan lochte Four Olympic Games, world records, 12 Olympic medals, just a phenomenal athlete. Give us a snapshot into working with one of the greats of our sport. He had a tremendous background. His father had been his, uh, his age group and his high school coach. And when he came to school, he was labeled a little bit as a talented guy. But uh, he only had, um, in November of his senior year, he only had one senior national standard. It was a 1650. Uh, 1500 meters or 1650 freestyle the mile now he made a couple more in the, the state meet after that but he when he came in his freshman year he was um it was a handful uh, great job training always good at the pool but you know, a little bit of a handful away from the pool so um uh, and, and his sophomore year he was um I, i'd say he was a, a little more rebellious uh was questioning why he was doing so much work mm. and uh, his father and I talked, and uh, his, his father was pretty instrumental. He talked to Ryan, and we had a conversation about it and said, you know, you just got to stay the course. This is where we're at. And Dad was really good about pressing him, and it was a key time in his career because what it did uh, between his father and I, he uh, bought into what he was doing. And once he was 100% in, he just kept getting better the whole time. Mm. Um, 
and and it, it became uh, we worked together almost 11 years the first time around and then he left for a few years but um the um th those 11 years the first eight of them he was the perfect athlete to deal with at the pool you got exactly what you asked for and uh, I, I guess the, the the most unique thing is we, we had a good college team at that time and his freshman year, he was one of the guys in the team, but by his sophomore year and certainly his junior year, he had evolved to where he was by far the fastest guy. Mm. And uh, the entire time he liked to race at practice, we, we got into the second, uh, second or third year there, and uh, I noticed he was no longer leading practice. And then versus saying anything, can we just spend a little bit of time and watched? He was, um, he'd found a way to kind of amuse himself at practice where he liked to race. And what he was doing, he was taking the set we set up and he would intentionally go five, three, eight seconds back and create race dynamics in practice. And in and, and his, and, and his idea, he liked to race. That was the reason why he was in the sport. Mm. And that made practice more meaningful for him by taking the time. To, and, then, and then we started talking about it and it became one. And then our goal was to see how far back we could be and still catch up people. Yeah. And, and pick out new challenges. And we, we, we would do things like um, spend a certain amount of time with the breaststrokers to improve our breaststroke leg of the medley, or a certain amount of time with backstrokers. And it, it became an exchange. I think there was a good learning experience for me because you realize how important the athlete's attitude towards training is. And uh, at, at the same time, the communication and the, the, um, the trust we built up between the two us became really important for success. You mentioned there how competitive he is, and no doubt Ryan has a great friendship with Michael Phelps. Obviously, come race day, the boys were fierce competitors. What was it like on some of those uh, US training camps when they'd be in the same training pool together? Do you have any good stories around that? I, I think um, before Beijing in our camp in 2000, we came off the trials, and they both swam really well. <clears throat> and uh, they both, both swam in similar programs. And um, Bob and I, the, the first uh, – First few days at camp, you know, everyone's just kind of getting together. And then after that, we started knocking heads with one another. And it must have been maybe three, four days into it. Those two guys are going at one another, and Bob and I were talking. And we decided we better separate them before they kill one another. <laughs> because going the way they were going, they would have been dead meat by the time we got to the meet. So we would, uh, at that point, we would kind of move, move them in and out enough to see one another and get a little taste of racing one another, but not so much that they were just going battling heads every day for for three, four weeks going in, into camp. So it was served a really great purpose the first week, 10 days. And then it was good the next two weeks, just a little bit here and there. But we had to be a little cautious and not put them head to head all the time. Have you seen the documentary yet? I have not. Uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. Ryan's been the whole round. And uh, he's, he's, um, he doesn't always make the best choices, but he's very sincere and has a good heart in what he does. And, and I, I think sometimes, um, Sometimes he get a little get a little lost in some of those poor choices he's made, and uh, hopefully he, uh, he comes through in the interview that, that he really does care about. People. He's a tremendous teammate. Mm -hmm. The guys that train with him love training with him. Uh, he's he's the type of guy in practice that he'll lean over the guy next to him and say, you know, I think if you took two more kicks off the wall, you'd be a little bit better. Yeah. Or the guy that would come up and say, hey, listen, let, let, let's see whether we can what we can go in this next swim. So he he brings the level of people around him up. Uh, mm. and it, very unique. Caleb is very much the same way. Both those guys are extremely well liked by their teammates, uh, make other people better around them. Um, 
maybe Caleb's decision-making process is slightly better sometimes than what Ryan has been away from the pool. But at the pool, they're, they're really good. I, I described the two. Um, uh, Ryan can handle a little more of a workload. Uh, yeah. Ryan, if you put him in naval terms, Ryan's a little more of a battleship. Now, he can take a beating. Mm. Caleb's a little more of a light cruiser. He's got to get in and get out. He can't stay in there and take that pounding quite as long. So I, I think that's um, that it's, it's a real learning experience working with two guys that are so good that swim multiple events that come from different training dynamics. Now, you see it a lot these days in coaching that some can only get great results with either male athletes or female athletes, but you, you seem to be able to navigate both those waters fairly comfortably. And you've had great representation, um, you know, in results with Elizabeth Beisel. Talk to me about Elizabeth Beisel. I mean, what an incredible athlete she was. Firstly, talk to me about your working relationship with her. Must have been a treat for you to, to get to work with such a, a gifted swimmer. I, I think I was actually better with females earlier. Uh, I, I didn't have quite the same talent level, but I, I think uh, maybe that's where some of that work ethic came from. Um, we, we had some really great at bowls. We had some really great high school age girls. Uh, we had two girls medal in uh, in '96 um, on the 800 freestyle relay, and Trina Jackson was uh, fourth in the in the 200 fly. But all the girls I worked with had tremendous work ethics. I mean, they they, they would um, you could challenge them every single day, and and so I think as as I, I got a little bit older, um, I had Teresa Crippen and some other people, and and really good girls group elizabeth was uh, elizabeth and Gemma spofford were both two higher profile ones um and they were entirely different Gemma was a 100 backstroker a horrible trainer and she had a hard time getting out of her own way at practice uh elizabeth came from a tremendous background and um chuck batcher had done a tremendous job with her and she came in and, and she knew she was a little more in the long end um uh, speed wasn't real good um statuesque she wasn't uh, real big and imposing, but she understood working hard. Um, and, and she understood, and one of those few people that really relished the 400 IM. She could swim all four strokes well, but none of them tremendous. Well, I guess she was a silver medalist, and bronze medalist in the 200 backstroke. I guess that's not too bad. But <laughs> um, she could swim all of them, but, but understood the work it was going to take to be good. And I think that's a tribute to her background with Chuck, and it's a tribute to her. She got better uh, every year through college. Um, doesn't happen very often with women. Each of her four years got better. And she was able to keep her focus on the big pool, understanding she was much better 50 meters than what she was 25 yards. Secondly, mate, working with male and female athletes for you, what are some of the main differences, uh, you know, psychology-wise that you've noticed in trying to get the best out of each swimmer? And is that something you've gotten better with over the years or have you always had a pretty good handle on differentiating? Uh, I... I would say I was um, a little bit of one of those um, more classic approaches. The women could handle more work than the men. Yep. So I, I would challenge them a little bit longer. Um, and I would start challenging the women earlier. The, the, the women can handle it earlier and, and need to do it earlier in their career. I always felt that the women somewhere between age 12 and 16, that if they didn't handle a really big work volume at some point in those years that they maybe we weren't going to be quite as good as they could have been, regardless of what their, where their best talents were. Um, so I always tried to really overload what they did in, in those dynamics. And I get back a little bit to Bill, um, all those good women Bill worked with. I, I think I learned a lot from that standpoint. And, and that's the way I challenged the women. The men, 
um, always tried to hold off with them a little bit longer. And that's one reason why I left Bulls. I loved the situation of Bulls, but I could see that the men, if you're going to work with people that were going to be highly successful. I, I came to Florida in uh, uh, the fall of uh, the spring of 1998. And you can see at that point that men's swimming especially was, was gravitating more towards older guys. You can still be successful with a young one. I don't think we should ever sell young guys short. And, um, obviously, you've had some great uh, Aussie male sprinters that have, have been young. Um, but but I, I think there's a tendency for their careers to be a little bit longer. And I think that the guys, um, the women sometimes seem to thrive in that hard work. And sometimes the guys, you can, if you beat them too much, you can take that uh, that zip out of them. Mm. So you, you can't be afraid to challenge, but also got to have a little more understanding of uh, that testosterone level, take a half step back at certain times and, and know that um, yeah. I, I found more and more as I've done this, that both males and females, I think the men have become a little more like, like the females and being a little sensitive sometimes. I think that the, the females have, uh, have been become a little more aggressive in, in today's world, which probably maybe always should have been that way. And, uh, but, but what I have found w w with both of them, if you can empower them, and, and you let them have some ownership. And that's been hard for me to do as a coach because, you know, sometimes we always, we always feel like that old saying that we, we get uh, too much praise when they swim well and too much blame when they swim poorly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think empowering them is really important. And I've found that more and more with uh, the sprint athletes. Um, and uh, if, if they buy into what they're doing, I think it's more effective than if you have to force them into that dynamic. Um, I think we're again to Bill Sweetnam's stories, you know, and you, he starts to tell he's a master of motivation. And I, I don't think it matters so much what practice you give him as often, but how you present that practice and how you can motivate him to make that practice effective for them. Self-reflecting and adjusting, whether that's for your own program or your approach to your athletes and coaching philosophies, how important is it? Um, I mean, I ask you this because obviously with a Hall of Fame career like yours, clearly you're pretty good at it and, and being able to, you know, identify things and, and pivot when necessary over the years. One, one of the best things about working at the University of Florida is they had really good coaches in all sports. So um, we had, uh, especially my last five, seven years there, we had a monthly coaching meeting and, and I've got high profile coaches from the volleyball world, the softball world, the basketball world, track, our men's track coach at Florida right now is, was going to be the head Olympic coach. And we, we got, it was a head coaches only. So it got a kind of an intimate group. They couldn't all be there all the time. So you're running with, with 10 to 15 people max and a, a discussion leader coming in and point the direction. And, and what I found in that, that was that um, the, the challenges you see in motivation in the sport are, are across the board. They're the same in all sports. The application might be different in each one. And, and, and you know, our, our volleyball coach asked me one time, well, why do you guys swim twice a day? And, and it forced me to evaluate exactly why do we go twice a day? Mm. Well, we go twice a day because we're going to compete twice a day when we get the big meet and we're going to swim uh, in today's world. And the short side, five days, and as long as nine days and, and in a high-level stress environment. So you have to, to mimic those situations and create those stresses in practice. So I, I, think, I think I learned a lot of those things. And if, you don't, if you're not self-evaluating and you're not constantly learning, then you're stagnant.
Yeah. And, and we constantly challenge our athletes to find new ways to be better. But sometimes we forget to challenge ourselves. Um, I, I had a story that uh, Pat Summit, one of, the, um, one, one of the premier women's basketball coaches in the United States, the University of Tennessee, I was told that she would bring in a retired coach at the beginning of a season every once in a while, stay for two weeks, and evaluate the program and especially evaluate her. Because sometimes as a head coach, people are inclined not to give you the information you need. So you've got to be very conscious of, um, of looking for people that are critical. You've got to be very conscious of understanding that there's other ways of doing things. And, and while you may not agree with it, uh, well, I keep coming back to Bill, Bill always said, you know, when you go to clinic, there's this tremendous tendency to go to clinic and only go listen to the people that you, you, you know you have an affinity for what they're doing and you're going to like what they say. Mm -hmm. What you really need to do is go see people that are on the other spectrum, out in another end, because they're going to have some really good thoughts. And if you take those thoughts, you can mold those into what you're doing in your program and they force you to self-evaluate where you're at. And that self-evaluation is what you make, makes you grow as a person, makes you grow as a coach. And I think that self-evaluation also allows you to open the doors to listen to your athletes better. And I had a pleasure of listening to you talk at an ASCO conference a few years back on the Gold Coast. And one thing that struck me when listening to you was that nothing was too complicated and there wasn't a secret formula as such in your eyes. You know, everyone knew what they had to be doing to be a successful coach. And it's just those who stuck to that formula who sort of reap the rewards, so to speak. And technique was very high on that agenda. How vital is it um, that our swimmers and, and in their career that they are technically as sound as possible and that we as coaches aren't compromising that? It is, it, it's, it's almost the number one thing. I think you, you, can, you can teach work ethic and there's all kinds of different ways you can modify around it. But you, the, the, the technique's got to be correct. And, and so many times we allow them when they're younger to get away with a, with a weaker technique. And those technical areas as you get older become more glaring. Um, again, now I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the by, by any means the most scientific guy. And my degree is in political science, so I'm, I'm a social scientist. But, but in, um, in the limited um, physics classes I had in high school, you know, they, they talk about um, drag coefficients. And those things are so great in swimming. You can, you can get really fast with poor technique to a point. But at some point, and I, it, it might differ by strokes, it might differ by body types, but at some point you get to a certain speed where you're doing something wrong that's creating drag coefficients that no amount of work will compensate for those coefficients. Mm -hmm. So at, at that point, you've got to step back and make the stroke correction. Unfortunately, in making stroke corrections, you usually go slower before you go faster. So it becomes very frustrating. So it, it always struck me that you don't want to be in that dynamic where you make those stroke corrections. So technique worse is a constant thing. Um, it's anyone can come in and go a set of 25s working on technique and do drills. Yeah. And, and all the athletes are really good. They love it. It's, it's, you know, it's a lot of fluff, important, but it's, it's, it's not as tiring. It's not as fatiguing. Mm. But if done correctly, it's mentally fatiguing because yeah. it, it's, it's even harder. So you, you, getting them to do those things and do them repeatedly are important. But even more than that, they've got to carry that same thing over into practice. They're going to carry it into the training session because I've always been a big believer that you are going to do in the race when you fatigue what you most often do when you fatigue in practice. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to try to create practice dynamics where you're really fatigued, where you're really under big stress. 
and then try to come back off that. And that's where your technique work becomes really important. Doing technique when you're fatigued in practice uh, is really, really important. All right, mate. I want to talk to you about highlights in your career now. And I know this won't be easy given the phenomenal success you've experienced, but surely there's a few moments that stick out to you as, you know, moments in time you're super proud of. I was asked this question in 12. Um, and, and before we go any further, uh, I've been fortunate to have a good career, but I, I've always been blessed with a, a lot of really good people to work with. Yep. Martin Welby, who is the head coach in, in Canada now. Martin worked with me for 18 years, and he was tremendous. Um, I, had, I had really good assistant, Larry, Larry Schoff at Bowles. Fantastic. And, and having good people that you work with like that makes your job easier. And if you have really good athletes, so, you know, sometimes we get a lot of praise because of, of, of um, people around us. And I think uh, relying on those people and, and, and taking their judgment is, is really key. Um, so um, key things. Uh, the one that stands out to me is um, our, our first day at the um, 2012 Olympic trials in the United States. Um, we put four people on the U.S. team that first day. Um, uh, Ryan obviously made the 400 IM. Elizabeth won the 400 IM. Um, Connor Dwyer made the 400 free, and Peter Vanderkam made the 400 free. And and that that was that was really big. The first day of the competition, and we stood up really big. Uh, and and we were, we were good the entire meet, but that day will always stick in my mind. But it's coupled with. Um, um, the first day of the Olympics in 2012. Um, the U.S. team is you come off that trials and you're getting ready and we hadn't been especially good. And everyone's, you know, wondering whether we were going to be any good in 12. And I, we're swimming the first day and I got those same four people going. And at the same time, I'm the head men's coach. So I, I felt um, uh, in that dynamic, you always feel responsibility as a coach when you're working with your own athlete. You haven't even Sometimes I think you feel a greater responsibility when you're working with someone else's athletes, you're caretaking. Mm-hmm. You're trying to make sure that you don't mess up someone else's good work. And then at the same time, if you're in charge of your, your country's team, that's a real power-packed situation. And uh, those same four athletes all stood up big and all went faster the first day at the trials. And we didn't see coming out of the trials, we didn't see how we were going to medal in the 400 free. And we went, uh, went third and fourth. Both of them had big draws, both Connor Dwyer and, and Peter Vanderkay to, to get things started. Ryan swims faster in the 400 IM. He, did, he, he win, wins the 400 IM and swims faster than he did at the trials. And then Elizabeth comes back and um, tremendous, 300, tremendous 400 IM. Uh, uh, yeah, we. And we handled a second place, disappointing second place finish in a unique dynamic with a whole lot of class. Mm. I think that's probably as proud as I've ever been of a group of athletes. Um, and then I, I turned back at the same time on the other end of my career, um, maybe my second year in Fort Myers. I had a lot of no-name athletes that no one knew who they were. We were at a, a little high school that had never had any success. And winning the conference meet that year for them was really something that I always remember because it was a lot of kids that no one had any confidence in. You know, one dad was on kid's dad was a shrimper and he couldn't get to practice. Another kid was this big old long herd kid that everyone thought he couldn't swim. And uh, we won the, won the men's conference championship with a lot of guys. It's like, who were those guys? And all the big names with the other schools. And we just flat out out trained them. 
Mm. And that ingrained in me a, a belief that you could accomplish anything if you believed in yourself and you really were going to work hard at it. So I, I, think, I think those two bookends things stand out. And then the other one I tell people, um, oddly enough, certainly um, having people break world records and, and people win medals and things, those are always high points. But I think the more important thing, and sometimes we miss in sport, is what tremendous people our sport produces. And when you get that phone card, that email from a kid that swam for you, well, 10, 15, 20, I'm getting to the point where it's 30, 40 years ago. And maybe at the time they didn't appreciate it, but they come back and they appreciate the work ethic and the things they learned from the sport and how it's helped made them successful. You realize then that by not compromising and challenging them, you were impacting their future and, and, and their, their, um, impact on the world and that's something that's generational you can never replace that now mate you're a head coach at the university of florida in gainesville from 1998 until only a few years ago tremendous success there um, when you decided to step back and coach a smaller elite squad for all the aussie listeners out there who may not know how much is involved in college coaching firstly how much did you enjoy it how time consuming is it and how different is it from being a club coach in, in my day, I was at Florida for 20 years, and um, exactly 20. I, I started in May of eight, uh, May of 98, and I uh, retired from college coaching in May of 18. Um, the, the, the job kept getting bigger. When I came in, I, I started – I left Bowles because it was a club team of 350, and we had um, 10 coaches and all kinds – plus some part-time people, and, and you – the way it was set up in the States, you're negotiating all that. And it was an awful lot. So I came to Florida to coach just women. I'd had a lot of success with the women at Bulls and I coaching just a women's team. And I really liked that dynamic of working with a smaller group. And after the year there, the athletic director asked that we put the two programs together and, and I took on both of them and that dynamic. Um, you've got, um, you've got, somewhere between 25 and 35 women mm -hmm. and you have somewhere between 25 and 35 men. So you got 70 and they're pretty high quality athletes and you've recruited them to come to school. So they, 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 you know, they've got some ability. If you're going to have any sort of success at all, um, you've got an international group on top of that. And we had as many as 22 in Olympic years, 22 people in addition to those people training. Um, you've got, um, so you're, you're working with about, 70 to 80 athletes that you're directly responsible for and you have a staff of somewhere between six and eight coaches that are working with them and um, I've always felt that um, good coaches and, and you've got to give those guys leeway to coach but at the same time I've always felt that um, response what the athletes are doing so you've got to know what's going on mm -hmm. and you're trying to get all those parts to work uh, at the same time, you're recruiting the next group of people coming in, and you got a group of people graduating and going out. Um, all of us in coaching sometimes, I, I think, probably good for age group coaches. Uh, we, we always kind of view the parent as an enemy. And, and they, they kind of – we all feel that way sometimes because they can get in the way. But when you're a head college coach, you start to realize what the parent does that um, when you're working with high school age athletes that you don't understand. When you're the college coach, um, if they get in trouble in the classroom, it ends up in your desk. If they get in trouble on Saturday night out in, uh, 
and have a beer too many at a party or something, it's going to end up in your desk on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. If uh, they're having a fight with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, especially if they're on the team, it's going to end up in your desk in some manner. You're, you're, you're consulting in those areas. Um, you've got to be constantly aware of your graduation rates because that's what your athletic directors want. Um, you have, um, you recruit athletes and in my dynamic, we recruit athletes that were very good international swimmers and long course swimmers, but at the same time you have a short course dynamic. Um, you're always treading that line of, of which athletes should put the focus on short course and which ones put the focus on long course. Uh, Elizabeth Beisel probably gave up a couple NC2A championships because for all practical purposes, we were, we were, I wouldn't say we were training through the NC2A meet, but it certainly wasn't the, wasn't our goal point. It was a, a someplace where you stop along the way. And you know, one year she's fourth at the NC2As, but she also, wins um, the world championships that summer. She won the world championship because we were fourth at the NC Joy mm. um, So you, you got all those things going on and you have lots of bosses. You, you got an athletic director, you got trainers that are extremely powerful in the American collegiate situation. You know, if they say an athlete is sick, they're sick. And, and as, as they should be, they're doing their job. It's no criticism, but you, you, you've got trainers, you've got academic advisors, you're still dealing with some of the parents from afar. So it, it's just a tremendous stress. And um, I, I came to the realization my last six, seven years of doing it, that um, it's especially important. Your staff has to be very, very tight and uh, got all be working on the same page because you've got all those moving parts. And at, at, at the same time, it's, um, it's, um, get, get, get all those pieces of fizz is hard and you, and, and, and performance at the highest level can get away from you so easily. So with all those moving parts, it, it, it was, it was, it's a full-time job mm. and, um, and it, it takes its toll on you. And I started to realize that um, if a guy like Caleb Dresser was going to be successful at, at the Olympics in um, 2020, it was going to take something. Uh, it was going to take something really special, and there wasn't going to be much room for error. And then I think we, we saw that. So it, it, the smaller maybe a chance of flexibility to work with those things. By the same token, um, the team dynamic in an American collegiate situation great. Helps you motivate people. Helps get them going. Training is a dynamic situation. You love getting to practice, but sometimes you're going to be encompassed with things that have nothing to do with practice, mm. and it, it makes it really hard. Now, I mentioned the Ryan Lochte documentary earlier, and and I want to turn my attention now to a guy who very well may have his own documentary made in years to come about him, and that's Caleb Dressel. He's definitely the premier swimmer right now in the world, possibly the biggest name and brand in swimming right now, alongside. Adam Peaty, Katie Ledecky, and Simone Manuel. What's it like coaching and mentoring an athlete that not just the US, but the world expects so much of? And did working with Ryan help you be a little bit more prepared for when Caleb came around? Without a doubt, working with Ryan helped. Because uh, Ryan taught me a lot about versatility. Um, and um, and, and the, the nice thing about Caleb, when Caleb came to school, you know, he had all kinds of options. And we had a long discussion about um, whether he wanted to be the best swimmer he could possibly be or just the best sprinter he could possibly be. And, and he was pretty adamant he wanted to be the best swimmer possible. Right? It, it's unfortunate that it doesn't fit in the program. It, his, um, 
his 100 breaststroke and his 200 IM when he broke the American record short course, he's capable of those, close to those type of performances, long course, but we just can't get everything to fit together. There's too much. Mm. Um, and, and he's so dependent on those relay systems. But, but watching him mature over, over the past six years, and he gets a better, better feel for where he's at and, uh, and, and understanding where he, where he wants, where he, what he feels important and taking the information he give you and, and molding that. Uh, I think it's been a really unique experience. And Ryan's helped him immensely. When those two guys are together, um, Ryan helps him a lot because uh, Caleb respects Ryan's experience. And Ryan, like I said before, is very good at sharing stuff. Uh, they're both, both really good for one another. Mate, 2021 Olympics, what's the most important thing for you and Caleb to work on over the next 12 months to ensure success? Is it, you know, the front end? Is it the back end? Or is it private and confidential and mind your own business? <laughs> All <of> the above. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, right now the key is, um, is handling the disappointment uh, because there, there's any athletes that say they weren't disappointed will work for real. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't disappointed, there's something wrong with you. I was disappointed. Caleb was disappointed. Um, and, and we'd come off a meet in Des Moines that it was by far the best we have ever swum at that point in the season, both mechanically, um, walls, the whole deal. We were really – and our two weeks of training from he and Ryan coming off Des Moines before everything was shut down were unbelievable. I, I saw a sprint freestyle set from Caleb. It was short course because I was checking speed, but it was just phenomenal. And we could do things over and over. So I, I think that level of disappointment is hard to, hard to deal with. So that, that's our first step. And, and I think we're getting pretty good at that, getting better. Um, dealing with the whole craziness of the world. Um, it, it's, there's no one, no one except for, people that have been injured or or disciplined in some manner there's been eight months without uh excuse me march april may june july august september six to eight months without a competition mm. and we we can do all the things we want to practice of, of formulating some uh, some fast swims and we can do all those unofficial time trials we want but they aren't competition and everyone in the world is going to have to have a realization of that. So um, we, we, we're addressing, we're doing some things to address that. I think, I think that's really key. Um, and and you know, just making sure that you can stay healthy and, and stay on top of things. And, and um, it was actually a plus. It gives us another year to get even better. Mm. And he's in the prime of his career. We just have to put those pieces together. Looked at after the, the world championships that we wanted to work on. And, and we saw some. Uh, we've seen some things that would indicate that we we were really good at addressing some weaknesses off the world championship. And but we, we're not going to discuss those. <laughs> I thought that might be the case, but I, I thought I'd throw it out there anyway and see how I go. Now I, I, I feel like if anyone I can speak to on this podcast will understand, I think you'll be best equipped to answer this question, given the success you've had. What makes a superstar swimmer like Caleb or, or like a Ryan Lochte, do you think? Is it something that, you know, can't be taught? Is it just being an ultimate competitor? I know, you know, you would have saw it yourself, the Michael Jordan documentary and just of how fierce a competitor he was. Um, you know, do you think you can reach that level just by simply being dedicated and working hard and having a burning desire 
to be the best or is it just simply something that you either have or you don't? I, I, I don't know that you have it or you don't. I do know that, um, that it's a combination of lots of factors. Um, it, it, what's that old saying? You know, it, it, it doesn't, everyone likes to win, but they got to hate losing. Mm. Caleb Dressel and Ryan Lochte hate losing. They, 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 Michael Phelps, they hate losing. Michael Jordan, he hates losing. Um, and I, I, I was a student of some other sports, great football coach like Vince Lombardi, hate losing. Ferguson hates losing. Those guys learn how to motivate those things in, in the right direction. Um, I, I think there, there's something to be said for that. And they're, they're, not, afraid to, um, they're not afraid to step out. And, and they're, you, what's really unique, the most unique thing I've seen about Ryan and Caleb, they're never satisfied. Mm. Now, getting them to understand on a day-to-day basis, practice isn't always easy. <laughs> but, but, but they're never satisfied at the competition. Uh, as good as um, um, Korea was for Caleb, we left with a whole list of things that, that and his was longer than mine, that we weren't happy about. Yeah. That we thought could be even. Um, and, but I, I think the key is it's easy to recognize those things in meet days. Can you take those things and put them into practice on the really challenging days and make it happen then? That's, that's important. And, and I, I think those really good guys find a way to do that. And they do, um, they do understand there, there is no fear. What's that Michael Jordan, you know, he talks about all the game-winning shots he took, but he wasn't afraid to take one. And he shot just as many that didn't win games mm. and shot more shots that didn't make it than ones that did. But he wasn't afraid to take that next shot. And I, I find that a lot for those really good guys. They're looking for ways to take another shot. Give me another opportunity. Now, I asked this of Bob Bowman when he came on, and I'll throw it out to you as well, mate. How proud are you of the relationships and bonds you've formed with your athletes, both past and present? I mean, results are great, and you know they've been astronomical for you, but how important are the friendships that you've formed in terms of you know, the men and women that you've helped mentor into both successful lives and careers? They're really important. <clears throat> and and um, they're, they're the thing, you know, stand on the podium and winning is great. But the, the, the things you learn in getting there, they're, those go, they're generational. They pass on from generation to generation. And, and you look at today's crazy world. We need leaders and we need people that can handle adverse situations and can function well in those adverse situations. Being able to contribute to that is, is really important. And I, I found that, that uh, until he retired, I bought my car from a guy that swam for me for over 20 years. Um, I, uh, I have um, just unbelievable numbers of, of phone calls and things that I got when everything was shut down. Guys that understood the passion for the sport. And then there are guys that swam a long time ago, but they understood the sport and they understood what was, what was happening and how's everyone going to handle all this. So that that concern for one another, those things are really big. I, Christmas cards. I've got, um, I've got a couple of girls that swam for me. Their parents send me every year pictures of, of the girls and the family and their vacation every year and things. Those type of things are unbelievably important. Gemma mm-hmm. uh, Spofford, right? I just spoke with her the other night. She's uh, eight months pregnant, getting ready to deliver twins. Fantastic. Having a chance to touch base and talk with her. So, And it's not always just the great athletes. It, it's the ones that sometimes, 
some of your best athletes and the people that help those great athletes are the ones that didn't quite have the skill set to put them. They were missing some ingredient in there, but, but their work ethic, they were part of what happened. Mm. And I always tried to sell the team on um, when someone from our group does successful, we're all sharing in that. And uh, that goes for me too. When, when these people go on and be successful in life and they have families and things, I get to share in those things. And, you know, there's sometimes there's some that don't appreciate it, but sometimes there's a lot of it come back afterwards and they a little time reflect on it. They appreciate it a lot more then. Mate, away from swimming and coaching, what do you get up to? How do you like to spend your time away from the pool? I've got a wonderful wife, married the same woman for 38 years, just celebrated our 38th anniversary. She's Very nice. been, to, been to Australia with me, been to the Gold Coast for the clinic. Um, um, Spending time with her is good, and it, it's really nice being out of that college whirlwind. Um, I tell people that um, being being out of that that being out of that college dynamic, um, I'm working a normal week now, just what other coaches do. But I have a little more time to 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 really dedicate to my wife. I've got three sons, um, all older, you know, grown men themselves. One married, one getting ready to be married. Uh, seeing them and spending time with them, you just can't replace family time and and staying involved in sports and uh, hopefully in some manner, in some situation, I can help give back to other younger coaches the way guys did for me when I was young. (laughs) I think you're doing a great job of that right now, mate, even just agreeing to come on the podcast for a chat. And I know a lot of coaches out there do listen to this and we'll get so much from your words of wisdom. Now, before we get into some less serious questions to finish up, mate, if there's any younger coaches out there listening uh, which they should be because they'd be mad if they aren't listening to, to your words of wisdom. What advice would you have for them in, in regards to sort of building their own legacy and program like you have? Um, I, th- I think the first thing you got to, you got to be patient. Uh, I, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, a little bit of impatience isn't bad. Don't misunderstand me. You got to be pressing the issue and, and you can't just accept things for the way they are, but you also have to be patient because, um, I always tell people that, that swimming's like a fine bottle of wine. You open it too soon and it's not very good. And, and so you gotta, you got to take your time working with it. That's one. And, and I, I was told by a, an older coach, and I don't even remember who it was to tell you the truth when I was earlier, stay the same place for a long time. You know, the grass is always green on the other side, but make, make the grass where you're at green. And the longer you stay in one place, the more you become an expert within that environment and, and then you meet a little less resistance. So I was, I've only had three jobs, one for five years and two for 20 plus. Um, so I, I, I think that's, that, that type of thing is good. Um, I think you, you've got to, um, and, and maybe even more so than ever before, um, you can't let the sport consume you. It has to be important. It has to be a priority, but it can be very consuming. And if you become too one-sided and too consumed by it, then you, you, you've got to understand the other things that are going on in life. I, I felt I became a better coach when I had, uh, when my own sons were all competitive athletes and uh, they all competed at relatively high levels within their sport. When I understood what they were facing at home, it gave me a much better idea mm. of um, – of what I could do on my end that made those things better. So I, I think if you can, if you can get a greater insight into what your athlete is like away from the pool, it probably helps you help them be successful. 
There's some great takeaways there, especially that part about making where you work greener. I, I love that. Um, as I said, I, I like to finish all our chats with some less serious questions, a little bit less swimming related. Okay, then tell me about all those jerseys behind you. What are they? Oh, okay. So um, a few of these are from um, auctions. So if I ever go to like charity auctions, I always like to get involved. So this one's signed by Kelly Slater, the rash shirt behind me. Um, got that at, at an auction. The Socceroos jersey, I got at an auction as well. And uh, I'm a rugby league guy out here in Australia, mate. So I go for Newcastle Knight. So, so that's, okay. and that's, they're all signed as well. Um, these ones on the side are um, from swim clubs I've coached at, and they're, they're all signed as well. And, and so is that one up in the, in the corner there that's framed. If I, if I ever leave, I obviously haven't taken your advice and stayed somewhere for 20 years. So if I ever leave a, a program, I always like to get all the, all the athletes to sign the shirt for me and I like to keep it. And it, it is good memory sometimes. You look up and you see those names and you know, I'm sure you're the same. It sort of brings back memories and, and good memories of, of coaching. I, w- I was cleaning out uh, some closets um, with, with my wife and my oldest son the other day and I had you're throwing out some old frame stuff. You know, you get all kinds of things and trying to decide what to keep. I got so much I can't keep all of it. And, and one of them is this frame thing. My son looks at it as all these little things. I said, well, you don't need this. And I grabbed that back. That was given to me by one of my athletes when I left Bowles. And what she'd done is had all these motivational sayings that I'd given them, and she'd gotten them all, plastered them all over them mm. and put them on, in a frame thing. So, yeah, yeah, those things are important. What about quotes, mate? Do you like quotes? Are you a quote guy? Do you have a, a book of quotes or do you have just things that are in your, in your memory and you, you know what they are? Uh, I, I, I've had athletes tell me that one of my, my favorites one is walk into practice and say that uh, another opportunity for self-improvement. And every once in a while I get a note for them that <laughs> they don't always see any humor in that. But, but I, <laughs> you know, and, and it, I, I'm not a real big quote guy that, got things that I come up with and they come and they go, I'm getting older. I don't remember all of them all the time. <laughs> all right, mate. What about, um, what are some of your favorite music? What are, what are some of the, the songs you listen to? What do you like to listen to? I'm um, a 60s, 70s rock guy mm-hmm. and country music. I love country music. I went to school in Texas and, uh, you know, I still have cowboy boots and I got a cowboy hat. I don't wear them there as much, but I, I like that type of music. It's, um, you know, a lot of drive to it. I think it's, 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 it's real people. It is very big over in America, isn't it? You know, you especially, oh, I mean, I know there's uh, younger artists out there, but your Garth Brooks and your, uh, what's it, Tim McGraw and, and these sort of guys. Yeah, I like those guys, but I'm, I'm into that hardcore old country stuff. Too. Oh, okay. You know, whiny and twangy. Okay. <laughs> Mate, Rolling what about- Stones, I like Rolling Stones. That's good stuff. Fantastic. I heard the other day that they're, they're, they're not happy with your president because he was using their music for uh, some of his rallies. So they've, they've launched some legal attacks to, uh, to stop him from doing that. I know that. Though. I, and I like to go to concerts. I've seen, I've seen the, uh, the Rolling Stones in concert in, um, in three decades. And um, that's, that the good side of that is you're seeing three. The bad side is you're getting that old. <laughs> um, I had tickets for him last time around and got canceled out. So, um, and I've, I've seen Garth Brooks in concert. A good guy. I, love, I, I like stuff like that. I used to like Las Vegas a lot. I like to play some cards, but a little harder to do right now too. 
was going to ask you about that. Um, one of those things in that documentary with Michael Jordan was was Dennis Rodman and his, his what was it, three days or something away in Vegas where he just he, he took off. Have you ever, ever had any experiences like that with your athletes? You don't need to name names, but have, have you had, you know, swimmers that have sort of gone rogue and you're like, or did you learn, you know, um, that you had to, for what was that saying from Chuck Daly, don't put a, a saddle on a Mustang? Did you, do, have you learned that over the years as well? I, I, I think that uh, you've got to learn that. Um, you've you got to learn when to press and when not to press. And there's, there's certain, certain times that you kind of let them, let them be who they are. Mm. And, and by the same token, as long as who they are fits. Uh, I, I always, always said that, you know, talk about quotes, I always felt like there was a place for everyone in the program, but my program wasn't for everyone. Very good. And I, I, I think that's, and, and um, I had a coach ask me not too long ago about, um, about when do you know when you've pressed them too hard? I, I, when, when they don't come back, you've pressed them too hard. <laughs> yeah. Where do you find that line? You know, if, if you really, I think, I think if you're really, really good, every once in a while you're going to get to a point with those really good athletes where you send them away from practice and you're a little fearful they won't come back, but you know that if they do come back, that's when you're going to make some big gains. Mm. So. Hey, what about... I don't know how uh, that came from music, but you know, I like to play music at practice. Well, music at practice good once in a while you started it because you started asking me about the jerseys behind me and that threw me way off what i have on my screen here that i'm reading so i thought all right that's it and i'm good for a chat as soon as i'm i'm off course we're going everywhere so my, my brain started ticking uh let's get back though what about movies what, what are some of the your favorite movies you like to watch uh cool hand luke great movie you ever seen that one no i haven't is that an older movie that's an older movie that's that, that's a good one um I, I like inspirational stuff, um, uh, good action movies. Um, the, the, um, I like the Godfather series. I like, um, I like one of my favorite movies. I rewatched um, Top Gun, Tom Cruise the other day. Mm -hmm. I like that movie, stuff like that. What about, um, you said you like Godfather. Did you see, was it The Irishman? Not too I long saw ago? The Ar I didn't like The Irishman quite as well. I had a hard time getting into that one. It was a very long movie. Yeah, too long, actually. <laughs> it was very long. Uh, what about um, Remember the Titans? That's my favorite. I like Remember the Titans. That's a good one. Uh, Hoosiers. That's a real good one. I always liked Hoosiers a lot because um, they, Hoosiers came out and, and my first few years at Bowles and when I was in Fort Myers, you know, we were kind of like, we weren't the star-studded group. We always had to work really hard. Mm. And um, we always, you know, usually did it uh, sometime before championship meet. We'd be on a way trip. We always watched Hoosiers on the bus. Wizards on the bus. You know, it's uh, one of my favorite spots that where they, uh, have you ever seen the movie? No, I haven't, but it's all right. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. It's a great basketball movie, Gene Hackman. And uh, it's about, a, it's a true, based on a true story about a small time Indiana basketball and Indiana basketballs. That state is crazy. High school basketball. It's about a small time high school basketball team that goes on and beats the big guys from the city and wins the state championship. But there's a, there's a spot in the movie where, uh, Gene Hackman comes in and they're, they're going and they walk in this big coliseum. They've never been any place like that before. First thing he does, he gets a step ladder out and he gets the shortest guy in the team. And the little short guy goes up and he has a tape measure and he measures the, the basket from the floor to the top. And it's exactly the same as what it was at their little gym at home. So it's a good movie. Mm -hmm. yeah, you like uh, coaching. 
you, you, you coach club team yourself. It's a good one. It's a real good movie. I, uh, the basketball one I like to watch is Coach Carter, but it's, uh, I'll have to have a look at that one. Yeah, you like, you like, if you like Coach Carter, you like Hoosiers too. What about books? Are you, are you a reader? Have you got any books that you'd recommend that, uh, that people read? It doesn't have to be for coaches because everyone listens. Um, I, you know, I, I used to read a lot. I, I don't read that much. I got one bad eye and it's a little strained to read. So I, I don't read near as much as what I should. Um, I, I liked, um, I'm a little more of a magazine reader. Uh, newspapers um, try to get a wide variety of things that I, I don't do that much reading. What about meals then? What, what's your favorite meal? If you, if you and the wife Mexican. go out for a dinner, what do you, what is Mexican. that? Mexican. I love Mexican. And the hotter, the better. <laughs> hot sauces. I've got a big hot sauce collection. I like hot sauce. I can put jalapenos on everything. And my wife wasn't a big hot sauce person, but she's come around over the years. She can, she can handle a little bit now. I like all kinds of seafood. Seafood and uh, seafood and, and Mexican are my, my priorities. What about barbecuing? You've got a great spot there near the water. Do you get the barbecue out and, and grill some stuff up? I can do a pretty good set of ribs. So we, we, we had ribs and especially, you know, a little, a little like Bob, I've gotten, and I didn't get into baking, but we started a, a family recipe book where my son and I were, we took turns every other night doing something and, and doing the meal. So that's some recipes. Gonna make a good white bean chicken, chicken chili. Love chicken. Chicken is my favorite food. Um, speaking of, of Bob, Bob and baking, he, he was mentioning, uh, talking about how competitive um, the, the swimmers are. Uh, he was saying that um, with the baking, he, you know, Michael would say to him, uh, you know, how are you going? And he'd say, oh, I think I'm doing really good. Actually, you know, I think I can bake better than you now. And he said, Michael got so mad that he said, no, that's, let's get over here and we're going to have like a bake-off and I'm going to prove that, that I'm better than you at baking and I, I will make sure that mine is better than yours. We're, we're back to why people are really good. <laughs> what about, uh, mate, you've, you've obviously traveled, you and the wife. What, what are some of your favorite countries you visited? Oh, I, I love Australia. And this isn't just because I'm talking to you. I mean, yeah. I love Australia. I love New Zealand. Both those places are just fantastic. And I, I've, um, I think the, the overriding reason, I, I don't think I've ever been any place where people are as friendly as what they are in Australia. Just mm. you know, a great time. You can walk into a bar and sit up and have a, have a, a beer and have a bitters. And yeah, no yeah. problem. I like it. Well, I think also, mate, just, just the way you are, and I remember at that ASCA conference, uh, I had a brief chat with you. You won't remember this, but I had a, br a brief chat with you. So I, I think just, you know, the, the sort of person that you are and you're humble, you're down to earth, you've got a good sense of humor. I think you would uh, fit in over here very easily. I, I, I've always, my wife and I said, and she likes Australia too. She's loved it when we've been there. So it's always been good. Speaking Over of pubs, time we're a little better when we get back. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. Speaking of pubs, if, if we were at the pub and I was going to shout you a drink, I was going up to the bar. What would I be getting you? Which point in my career? I've, <laughs> I've done a route of all of them, and, and not always proud to say, but every once in a while, I've done each one of them too much one time, so I moved <laughs> on to something else. I guess my, my my favorite drink would probably be a a really good scotch. Just a, just a over the rocks, just nice, good sipping scotch. That'd probably be my favorite drink. 
Perfect. I think I could get amongst that as well. Now, mate, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you very, very much. It's been an absolute honour and a privilege to speak with you and go through your unbelievable career so far and then still has a few years to go. Absolutely. On behalf of the world of swimming, mate, I want to thank you and, and your contributions to the sport. And without a question, your you know coaching career will go down as one of the best of all time. And I dare say if we put your coaching career up against some of the other sports as well, um, you, you'd come out at the top. And I know you're not going to say that you're very humble. And I, I get the, the sense through, through this conversation that, you know, that sort of praise doesn't come easily to you. Um, but I think that's a testament to, to your humble nature. You've had too many of those scotches, obviously. No, it's in the morning. I told you it's bad <laughs> <had> coffee. <laughs> well, well th- thanks so much. I, I appreciate the, the kind words, and it's been really great talking to you. Mate, so, stay Ron, safe over doing there. What you're doing. The tremendous service for the sport. Thank you. Well, it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's a pleasure for me to be able to just sit and, and talk to you. And I'm a coach as well myself, mate. So a lot of this is professional development. You know, I can go back and, and, and have a look at my own program with some of the things that, you know, I've spoken to Bob and now speak to yourself and, and I've spoken to a few Aussie coaches as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for me. And it's a credit to you guys um, in donating your time back to to the sport and you mentioned it before i think that's something that swimming does really well is is always being open to to helping others well, you see my uh, my aussie friends coaching over there please tell them i said hello and and uh, it's been really great talking to you thanks so much absolutely mate thank you very much stay safe over there continue your success with your athletes getting back in the pool and heading towards uh 2021 and hopefully mate we can stay in touch and Maybe uh, next year, get you on for another chat. But till then, thank you very much for coming on Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Sounds good, Robbie. Take care. Today's episode of Off The Block Swimming Podcast is proudly brought to you, as always, by our good friends at Pro Swim Workouts. Now, if you love today's episode and want to hear it again, don't forget we are now also available on YouTube with all the interviews right there in video for you to view. They're about 20 minutes shorter versions, best bits, if you will. So make sure you head over there right now, like and subscribe, and enjoy all of Season 3 so far. Until then, though, guys, hope you have a great day. Keep smiling, and it's bye for now. I just want to-